0: Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The End Report. In this episode, we'll discuss the fallout following the government's decision to act's nutrient neutrality rules. We'll run the rule over the new net zero secretary, Claire Coutinho, and we'll discuss what Labour's latest reshuffle tells us about how seriously the party takes environmental issues. Then, in this episode's deep dive, we'll be catching up with Katie Dekawa, an environmental lawyer at Friends of the Earth, and one of our 2023 power list. So, without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. I'm Jamie Carpenter, and I'm here with news editor, Pippa Neal and features editor, Tess Colley. For our first big green news story this week, we're going to return to the issue of nutrient neutrality. You hear the groans already. The government's decision to scrap the nutrient neutrality rules was something that was discussed in last week's podcast, but a lot of new information has come to light since then. And before we go into the detail, I think it's worth reflecting on what a huge story this is and, and, and why that is. Since Brexit, the government has repeatedly told us that it has absolutely no intention of weakening environmental protections. And we heard that a lot during the passage of the Environment Act, and more recently during the passage of the Retained EU Law Act, and many other instances as well as that. But here we have it in black and white, and and. It's a clear example of regression, and I think that's why there's been such an outcry from from a load of green groups to, to what's happened. To get into the detail, which which as I mentioned earlier, it kind of emerged a lot of it emerged after last week's episode. Um, we start with the amendment that the government is seeking to make to the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill. Um, what, what does it say, Tess?
1: Yeah, so I mean, there's there's quite a few amendments, but the the main one and the most I suppose uh, the most egregious ones um, basically say if they're made law, the government would disapply uh, the habitats regulations to new build planning permissions. And those regulations are some of the strongest environmental protections that we have uh, in this country. And it would require that councils in areas with, um, with vulnerable protected sites must assume nutrient pollution from, from those new build developments will not negatively impact them. So, basically, saying even if you know proving this development will negatively impact uh, maybe that protected river or that protected waterway, press ahead anyway because it explicitly tells planning authorities to ignore any advice to the contrary uh, which comes forward from either uh, environmental assessments or government agencies or indeed, and I quote, by any other person. So they've uh, not left left much there. <laughs>
0: wow, well, that's um fairly uh strong stuff i guess it's Um, pretty
1: strong stronger than anyone i think thought it would be from from the conversations i had we all knew this was something was coming um because government's been briefing it for so long but people thought that the government would would take such a knife to these big protections
0: yeah and that that's clearly upset um green groups they're very angry um rspp are more than angry, I think, or they, they were a few, few days ago. Um, we'll talk about them more later. Um, but there's also been um, a strongly worded statement from a response from the um, Office for Environmental Protection. Um, what, what did they say, Tess, and how did the Environment Secretary, Therese Coffee respond?
1: Yeah, so the Office for Environmental Protection, they wrote to the government warning that um these nutrient neutrality changes would represent a demonstrable regression in legal environmental protections and that they risked uh, I quote, substantial harm to protected wildlife sites. Um and it, yeah, it like like you said, it was a strongly worded letter. Some people have loved it, some some others have thought that that you know, why can't they, they say more or do more? Um but so the I spoke to the Oep's chief executive Natalie Pross and she said you know they'd also that what they would like to see is if necessary government should make a statement to Parliament saying on the face of the leveling up bill that this will this will be a regression environmental law um because she said that's really important to be clear because that's how that would allow Parliament and House of laws to do their job properly in terms of scrutinizing the law and you know you need to be to be clear that that is what this will do um Whereas Coffee has dismissed uh, the watchdog's concerns. Her response obfuscates a little bit because, like I just said, the the OP had raised concerns about environmental law, um, and Coffee kind of responds saying, "Well, actually, uh, we're confident that changes will will not lead to a regression in environmental outcomes. And outcomes and the law are quite different things. Um, outcomes could be things like I don't know, have have clean rivers by." Ex date, um, they take longer to monitor. They're a bit fluffier um, than laws. Which, in the case of Nietzsche neutrality or the ones that underpin neutral neutrality, they were pretty clear that you can't improve homes if it will make vulnerable rivers in protected places even worse. That was it. So she she dismissed what they said. Basically, she, there was more to it, but she bat- battered the watchdog away.
0: Yeah, and they came back. The watchdog came back and said, "Oh, actually, it, it still is regression in law."
1: Yes, it it all happened over a course of about a day and a half, and it 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 was a very quick response from the OEP to that saying. Well, actually, you know, reading between the lines, they weren't too impressed by the response, and they said, "No, this is definitely a regression environmental law." Actually,
0: it's have like teams of letter writers standing by to get them out of that yeah. Quickly. yeah. <laughs> so we we're going to talk a bit later in the podcast about Labour's reshuffle, um, but but um, I thought, given the fact there's an election coming up, we could talk about Labour's position. There seems to be quite a lot of interest in what Labour might do and whether it might might reverse what the government's done. Um, what, what do we know about this, Pippa?
2: Yeah, so it's been quite interesting because while Labour has kind of come out and, and condemned the government's track record on sewage, sewage pollution and house building, they have not specifically attacked these amendments. Um, so in a statement last week, the then Shadow Housing Secretary, Lisa Nandy, said, you know, she said the Conservatives are failing on both housing and the environment. And she said that Labour supports a strategic approach to house building with housing targets developed in partnership with local areas. The next Labour government will bring an end to the Tory sewage scandal by delivering mandatory monitoring, introducing automatic fines for discharges paid for by eroding dividends and setting ambitious targets for stopping systematic sewage dumping. But yeah, this statement, you know, made no mention of kind of condemning these amendments or suggesting what Labour would do, mm. you
0: know. It seems like a reiteration that. of existing policy positions, doesn't
1: mm. it? Yeah, I think there's a lot of pressure on this very week because there's the, that some peers have tabled a kind of counter amendment in the House of Lords to try and undo uh, this thing the government wants to do with Nietzsche neutral neutrality. Um, but, you know, it really, if it's going to go anywhere, it needs it needs Labour to back it and they currently... Uh, at the time of recording have not. Um, but there's a lot, I think there's lots of things going on in, in back rooms in Westminster trying to get Labour to, to to back it. And we'll have to see where that goes.
0: Yeah. And this all must have been quite a bitter pill to swallow for natural England. It's really kind of borne the brunt of, of all the criticism over nutrient neutrality and um it's it's Chair yeah, Tony Juniper's been a bit of a champion for the for the rule, so he's he's kind of mm. been very clear that um the, the that those measures are actually really important if we can have any any realistic um hope of meeting environmental targets. Um and, and I, th- I think that kind of there, there was a bit of speculation over whether Tony Juniper would actually resign um as a result of what the government's done. Um he hasn't yet. And have we heard anything from him about about what, what he thinks of the announcement?
1: Well, he's, he's only commented on it directly once. And that was to say that, no, he's not going to resign. Um, I can I can tell you what he said. He said many questions today. That was the day the government made its announcement about whether I will resign as chair of Natural England. I have no intention of doing that. It is my privilege to lead the Natural England team in our national programme for nature recovery. And I don't believe the work of this excellent organisation will be aided by me going. Um, right an interesting statement really because he's not um, he's not he's certainly not backing what the government has done There is he's saying who gains if I leave Um, is what he's he's saying so other than that he tweeted a video from his back garden of a wasp taking down and, and carving up Quite, you know, it's quite grim watching a dragonfly bit by bit, and you know, we're not people; we're not ones to to read into anything so here. On the, the,
0: the government, the wasp, and the dragonfly's nutrient <laughs> neutrality. possibly
1: common, Jamie, but uh, that's that's what that's what uh, Tony Juniper has been doing.
0: Just leave leave the listeners to, t- to make their own conclusions on that. <laughs> um, so, so one one last thing on on nutrient neutrality. Um, I think we be relieved to hear, um, at least for this episode. So there was there was a huge row as well after after this the the RSPB used x which i'm still calling twitter to um attack the government they they basically put out a post where they they called Rishi Sunak treasury's coffee and Michael Gove liars so that the tweet said you said you wouldn't weaken environmental protections and yet that's just what you're doing you lie and you lie and you lie again and we've had enough so um so it has later Apologised. Although brilliantly, the tweet is still live, so you can go and look at it if you want to. Um, Pippa, what what on earth is going on?
2: Yeah, so the apology was quite interesting um, because they basically said, you know, that the RSPB is is deeply frustrated by the government, you know, scrapping like pledging to scrap nutrient neutrality, and that you know, they are apologising because they say that this frustration led us to attack the people, not the policy, and that this is far below the standard that they set ourselves. And for that, they've apologised. Um, but they've said, you know, they'll continue to campaign vigorously on behalf of nature, but will do so in a polite and considered manner, <laughs> which is quite interesting. Um, and yeah, as to kind of why why they did this, I think that is a really interesting question. Um, and I saw that Ben Caldicott, who is a trustee of the RSPB, he um, responded to the RSPB's original post where they were calling the um, government liars. You know, by kind of saying whatever whatever one thinks of government policy proposals and their record on nature, these tweets are simply not appropriate um, from such an important and highly respected organisation. We can disagree and make our case without calling people liars, he said. Um, and speaking to the BBC's Today programme, the charity's chief executive, Becky Spate, um, said that, you know, she hadn't approved the initial post before it went out and said, you know, this doesn't follow our normal protocols. And she said the reason they've kind of decided to issue, issue an apology is that, you know, they believe that the nature of public discourse does matter. And, you know, they they kind of she reiterated that they're they're campaigning on policy, not people.
0: The other thing on that as well, I think it's quite interesting, is is it came quite soon after the the Greenpeace thing, where Greenpeace mm. have basically been frozen out of talking to government because of of pouring oil over Richard next house or something like that. Was <laughs> looking like they did and, and curtains. Um, yeah. And I, I suppose for the RSPB, they 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 their their conversation with government is going to be really really important to so what they do. So they 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 may have also been quite cautious about that in the end because of fear of um suffering a, a greenpeace style fate mm-hmm.
1: um well they want access to be able to to, to get their point across and then to do that you've got to get through the door in the first place
0: yeah yeah exactly but i think i think what what we what everyone probably wants to hear from us is whether whether we think the liar claim is accurate does anyone want to offer a view on that
1: um well i yeah <laughs> So, you know, you're talking about lies, you think about facts and what's not a fact. So, I, you know, thinking about this question, I looked up the de- the dictionary definition of a liar, uh, which is someone who tells lies, which, you know, wasn't very useful. So I looked up the definition of a lie, which is something that you say uh, that you know is not true. Um, so I thought that was quite an interesting one to dwell on. Did the government know that it wasn't Uh, that it was going to do this all along or has it come along the way? At what point did they become a liar by that definition? Who's to say? say, Um, There's an example sentence which I just thought was interesting I want to pull out, uh, given by the Cambridge English Dictionary uh, of the use of liar, which is that uh, the politicians lie not because in most cases they are liars or approve of lying, but because the potential electoral costs to them of not lying are too great. So that's an example of a way you can use the word liar.
0: Okay, Have you want to add to that. We ought to steer well clear of yeah, it. Yeah,
2: I'll leave that. Leave that to Tess.
0: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I think does the uh, does the question quite well, there, Tess. Um, I mean, I, think, I think another thing on the RSPB issue before we move on is is that I think it, it's probably been actually been quite helpful for the government because it's meant everyone's been talking about the RSPB rather than mm. the the substance of what the government's trying to do. So, so although the RSPB is very very angry and I think probably motivated for for good reasons, it's possibly in a bit counterproductive to kind of make that point in that way um that's my view i'm also not going to answer the question about whether they're, they're liars or not but um <laughs> <laughs> people can draw their own conclusions from that um so we'll move on um our next big renewed story is is the shake-up of rishi shinat's cabinet and um given the chaos of this week which has seen the government hit by another new crisis this time over school buildings it already seems a very long time ago that this this happened but this this um mini reshuffle, which was triggered by the resignation of Ben Wallace um, from Defence Secretary. Um, that then triggered Grant Shapps to move from DESNES, um, which we're calling it apparently, to Defence. And that's amazingly his fifth Cabinet Secretary role in just a year. Claire Coutinho is then stepped into his shoes as Energy and Net Zero Secretary. Um, so mini reshuffle, but but some consequences for um, environmental and climate policy. Um, Pippa, what do we know about Claire Coutinho?
2: Yeah, so I mean, in short, we don't know all that much. And that's because she kind of only started her political career in 2019, um, when she was first elected as an MP for East Surrey. Um, But she has worked in the Department of Education um, since October last year. And prior to this, she also spent one month under Liz Truss as um, a minister in the Department for Work of Pensions. Um, and Before her political career, she worked for investment bank Merrill Lynch, an accounting firm KPMG, and she was also a special advisor at the Treasury when Rishi Sunak was chancellor, and um, there's been a few reports that they have a you know, close and good relationship. Um, she also spent two years at former British politician Ian Duncan Smith's centre-right think tank, the Centre for Social Justice, um, and on her website she states that she focused on a wide range of issues from education to financial in- inclusion.
0: Okay, great. And has she, she um, given any indication of what she thinks about green policy so far?
2: Mm, so, as an MP for East Surrey, she's been pretty vocal against the ULEZ expansion. Um, and when the um, after the recent High Court ruling, which I'm sure listeners will will be familiar with, where um, The judge ultimately ruled in favour of the Mayor of London that the expansion could go ahead. She said she was deeply disappointed that Sadiq Khan had won his court battle to expand the ULES on our doorstep. Um, But yeah, I guess that's not really surprising given everything that's going on within the Conservative Party over ULEZ at the moment. Um, But she's also been a vocal supporter of the Wildlife Trust's Wild Belt campaign, um, which is a campaign that was launched in 2020, calling for a new designation of land that would put nature at the heart of planning. Um, And in June 2021, she said in Parliament that making sure that we can build the right homes is our moral duty um, and um, an important part of maintaining the country's competitiveness. So it's important that the wild belt works alongside house building, not against it. And I think this is all quite interesting, given you know everything we're talking about with nutrient neutrality and this kind of toss-up between nature versus house building. Um, and yeah she's a, she's also a member of the Conservative Environment Network who welcomed her to the post and and described her as being a champion of environmental campaigns such as the Wild Belt Wildlife Trust campaign.
0: Fantastic. So Rishi was not the only one to be shuffling his pack. Um, Labour now has a new front bench. So and that that followed a more extensive reshuffle on Monday. So we have a new shadow environment secretary, Steve Reed. Um, He replaced Jim McMahon, who stood down just ahead of the reshuffle announcement. Tess, what do we know about Steve Reed? Well, he's
1: been he's been around for a little while as an MP since twenty twelve. He's been uh, MP for Croydon North, uh, an urban MP appointed to the the Defra brief was a interesting move. Um, I'm sure the Conservatives will be looking at that closely. Um, He's he's held a variety of, of shadow ministerial posts in his time. He's just come from the shadow ministry of justice and spent a bit of time before that uh, as a shadow housing, housing secretary of state. Um So he's, he's done a fair mix of things. One interesting thing I did pick up was as shadow um in the shadow post in, in the housing department, he made some interesting comments in 2021 about, uh, developers when he told MPs that the problem with a lack of homes being built lies with land banking by those developers rather than the planning system. Um, that was in the context of previous government proposals to to create different zones around the country. Uh, when in, And in growth zones, there'd be minimal planning permission needed to build. And that kind of got a lot of green groups worried. It's almost like deja vu, isn't it? Um, but he that was interesting comments I thought he made there again in the context of what we're seeing at the moment with nutrient neutrality. Um, by the way, there's a lot less to say on his record on, on nature recovery or any other environmental issue, really. There's not a lot there. He did set up a sustainable energy generating co-op in South London uh, kind of in his patch. Um, so he's taken an interest on, on that front, but that's, that's, that's the lay of the land.
0: Great. And, um, and what does this say about the importance that Labour attaches to environmental issues, his, his appointment, do you think?
1: Well, it's hard to say. As soon as he was appointed to the role, there were a lot of politicos across the land, which is Twitter, uh, who labelled it uh, you know as a demotion from going from the Ministry of Justice to, to DEFRA. So that tells you one thing. Uh, but I think the fact he that he seems to have very little background on the subjects he's about to have to steer policy on and Labour hasn't really got a lot of environmental policy not anything fleshed out really at the moment doesn't necessarily suggest they see it as especially important and he's quite unknown to people in the sector there would have been other candidates who I think green groups or not just green groups but uh, people from across the environmental sector knew about a bit more Um, he wasn't one of them so I don't know People get put into positions in reshuffles for all sorts of reasons, for political reasons, because, you know, so and so wanted them to move out and so they had to go there. But it tells you that it's not at the front perhaps of Keir Starmer's thinking.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair to say. I think there there was a an interesting list doing rounds on Twitter yesterday, uh, Monday, which almost seemed to kind of rank the um different departments in in order of importance. And mm-hmm. um DEFRA on the Environment Post was quite a long way down on that list it which whether that's a true true reflection of, of of how labour feels about things or not is um uh is, is is not clear but it did it did seem to kind of reflect probably where 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 they're at on on this so that brings us to the end of this week's big green news section thank you to pippa Neal and tess collie now it's time for this episode's deep dive james agupon parsons recently caught up with friends of the Earth's katie de over to you james So friends
3: of the earth allege that the government is in breach of the Climate Change Act. Can you just explain to our listeners the significance of that act and why you think the government isn't following it?
4: Yeah, sure. So the Climate Change Act is a hugely important piece of legislation. It was the first piece of national legislation anywhere in the world to set a long-term, legally binding, emissions-saving target. And it came into force in 2008. Um, it was adopted as a piece of legislation following a successful campaign led by Friends of the Earth, the Big Ass campaign calling for this sort of long-term thinking to be put into the statute books, because the problem was that um, we could see that if that sort of legal duty was not in place, then there would be far too much of a risk that governments would uh, successive governments would pursue sort of short-term thinking rather than thinking of the long-term solutions that are needed to address the climate crisis.
3: Right. And Theresa May, to be fair, her government then went a step further with the Climate Change Act, right? They 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 bolstered it to net zero.
4: Yes. So the original um, 2050 target was an 80% or at least 80% emissions reduction target. So the net zero target was adopted in 2019 and that, as you say, goes a step further. It's a more ambitious target and it requires even greater action than the previous target did.
3: But your organization thinks that this government isn't adhering to it.
4: Yeah. So what this government um, has done uh, on two uh, consecutive occasions now is produce a policy that does not show how upcoming targets are going to be met. So um, last year, Friends of the Earth, Client Earth and the Good Law Project took the government to court um, on the basis of breach of the duties in the Climate Change Act, the duty to prepare policies and proposals that will enable upcoming carbon budgets to be met. So that's the plan? Yeah, exactly. That is the net zero strategy plan. And the High Court um, ruled that, yes, the government had breached the act. And um, so it's the first time that any challenge had been successfully taken um, against the government on the basis of this very important act. So it was a real landmark moment in showing that um, it is possible to enforce the government's legal duties through the court system. Um, However, what's happened since, uh, disappointingly, is that the government um, has had nine months or had nine months to produce a revised and lawful strategy. Instead, they've come up with something which is inadequate and we think also falls short of the legal requirements set under the Act. So hence, we have the second challenge, a bit deja vu in some ways, um, that we launched uh, a few months ago. And again, Client Earth and Good Law Project are also bringing challenges Can you just unpick that a little
3: bit for us? What are your main disputes with the government's plan?
4: So our key uh, concerns are in relation to section 13 and section 14 of the Climate Change Act. So section 13 is concerned with uh, the Secretary of State needing to prepare policies and proposals that um, will enable the upcoming carbon budgets to be met. Um, the section fourteen duty is concerned with producing a report to Parliament, setting out um, what all of what all of those policies and proposals um, are to enable Parliament to scrutinise it as part of the you know very important democratic process. So, in the uh, judgment last year against the original net zero strategy, the judge held that the issue of risk to delivery that is. Um, how risky policies are in terms of their ability to achieve emission savings and what the risk is that they will actually be delivered at all. Both of those things were critical to successfully discharging these duties under the Act. And what we see in the revised strategy is a complete lack of information on this critical issue of risk. And so it is our view, one of our core grounds, is that the the Secretary of State or the Minister did not have sufficient information to enable him to adopt um, this plan, um, because without that, the, the lack of information meant that he was not discharging his duty under Section 13 of the Act, and in turn, there's a complete dearth of information in the actual revised strategy, also known as the Carbon Budget Delivery Plan, which again means that Parliament... Is in the dark too. Um, another aspect of our challenge concerns the sustainable development duty under Section 13 of the Act. So, when preparing policies and proposals to meet these upcoming carbon budgets, the Secretary of State is required to do so in a way that must contribute to sustainable development. Um, and again, we don't think that that duty has been discharged, including um, by reference to the fact that. Um, The Carbon Budget Delivery Plan, the revised strategy itself says that it only um, expects 92% of the emissions savings needed to meet our nationally determined contribution. Um, I should say that our nationally determined contribution is uh, something that we've adopted under the Paris Agreement, so that's international law. Um, But the uh, target um, that Richie Sunak repeated just months ago Um, is that we reduce our carbon emissions by 68% as a country by 2030. So having an 8% shortfall in a period of when we've only got seven years to rectify that is extremely concerning and we believe um, puts the government in breach of the sustainable development duty in the Act.
3: Those NDCs, those nationally determined contributions, can you just... Take us through that. So that that was something that we agreed to COP fifteen at the Paris Agreement that we would reduce X amount of emissions every year.
4: So um, the nationally determined contribution is, as you say, it's adopted in relation to the Paris Climate Agreement as opposed to the Climate Change Act. Um, the requirement is for us as a country to have reduced our total emissions, um, as against the 1990 baseline, by 68% by 2030. So we need to be producing as a country 68% less emissions than we were doing in 1990.
3: Do you think the government cares less about that because there isn't an international court to enforce, enforce it?
4: I think the government is clearly not prepared itself well in terms of the nationally determined contribution. As you say, there isn't um, an obvious international forum um, to enforce this quite. Why um, they're doing this, I'm not entirely clear, other than that they have been making a lot of pretty terrible environmental decisions in recent months. Um, We can look to the Whitehaven coal mine, for example, and the um, new licensing that's been announced by Rishi Sunak in the North Sea. Yeah, which we've we've gone in quite a lot of in-depth into
3: this series of podcasts. In the government's defence, it would say that between 1990 and 2021, the UK has cut emissions by 48% while growing the economy by 65%, uh, decarbonising faster than any other G7 country. That's kind of their pitch, their their stand.
4: Is that good enough? No, it's not. Um, first of all, this isn't a race to the bottom in terms of, you know, we need to be as a country, we need to be showing uh leadership and strong leadership on this. If you look back at some of the Committee on Climate Change's previous assessments of how these emissions reductions have happened, um a lot of that has come down to changes in the power sector. But what we're and in a sense the more low-hanging fruit in terms of the easier emission savings have been coal, delivered. Coal but yes, but in terms of the harder decisions or the, the, the slightly harder to de- decarbonize sectors, we're seeing a, a lack of progress there. So for example, things like the need to insulate housing and buildings, the need to actually move away from fossil fuels as a source of, of energy full stop, the need to decarbonize transport all of these things so i mean at the moment the government is not on track to meet um its upcoming carbon budgets they were set i mean the fourth and the fifth carbon budgets were set in relation to the old 80 percent 2050 target um that target obviously was less ambitious than the net zero one so it needs to outperform them anyway and then on the government's you know own case with the carbon budget delivery plan, it's again not going to um meet the um the sixth carbon budget, which covers the period twenty thirty three to twenty thirty seven There's again a shortfall of three percent that's by its and, own admission and that's by its own admission um based on the policies that it has actually quantified, but when you again look at the carbon budget delivery plan there, as I've said, there's a complete lack of information on the risk to the policies in that plan. And yet the government's um, claim that, you know, 97% of emissions uh, savings are going to be achieved is based on all of these policies being delivered in full. Um, So how you can reach that kind of conclusion when you're not specifying how risky these policies actually are, you know, there's there's a gaping error here. Um, another sort of smoking gun, as far as we're concerned, is um, there was a leak back in April this year um, by uh, Defra, who had done apparently done this was reported in, in the Times their own risk assessment of the uh, net zero policies. From their department and there were 44 policies that were referred to and of those I think 21 were categorized as either amber or red. None of that information on that level of concern over risk has made its way into this carbon budget delivery plan. If Defra has done that then you know it's clearly possible that other departments have done it as well and the government you know the carbon budget delivery plan says nothing about any of that. So, yeah, there's a real dearth of information and a lack of clarity over what the thinking has actually been behind this plan and what the level of risk um, that this plan actually carries. And, you know, in the context that we're in, we've had, as you know, um, record-breaking temperatures in this country last year, 40 degrees um, Celsius. We've seen wildfires breaking out at a really alarming rate across much of Europe, um, we're just not in a position, um, any position now to be doing anything other than acting really decisively and clearly.
3: Is there a danger that there's sort of the government is waiting for that silver bullet? And I'm I'm thinking of sort of carbon capture storage or carbon capture utilization and storage, because from from all my reading is that a lot of climate scenarios or emission reduction scenarios are all about bringing that technology in at quite a rapid scale in the next few decades to reduce our emissions. Is that something that Friends of the Earth endorse, that kind of technology and usage in the future?
4: Um, Friends of the Earth believes uh, very strongly that to, in on order to see reductions in emissions, we need to work on actually reducing emissions so we you know strongly oppose the idea that technology can just save the day and we can just carry on as normal without any changes to the way you know our economy works and of course technological solutions are very attractive for certain people because it means that they can carry on extracting fossil fuels you know we can have as high a level of aviation as As we like it can continue going up and up and up and nothing needs to change but this is you know this is fantasy land it's not it's not realistic um and it is deeply objectionable because ultimately um there is no evidence that any of this can happen on the scale which would be necessary i mean carbon capture storage is still a technology in its infancy things like um sustainable aviation Fuel, again, still in their infancy, it seems, you know, complete madness to bank on these potential solutions at the expense of actually taking action now. I mean, if you look at these things, things like carbon capture storage, things like reliance on offsetting, um, all of this enables business as usual, unfortunately, and they're often, well, certainly in the case of offsetting, they're not trading like for like, because, you you know commit to planting x number of trees and imagine that that just cancels out you know your carbon emissions you're not replacing one form of carbon storage with another because you know fossil fuels buried underground are highly stable they've been there for millions of years whereas when you have forests um you know trees at most will live for a few hundred years and we've also seen you know Wildfires, wildfires affecting right. carbon offsetting projects like Microsoft's uh, last well, year, COT literally going up in atmosphere. smoke. So, you know, it's not like for like. There's also just not enough land mass for those sorts of solutions to go round. Um, so, yes, in, in terms of you know trying to pursue um, policies that. R- Require you know absolutely no or minimal change to the way our system works is not something that um, Friends of the Earth sets any you know credibility by.
3: Can I just press you though on that that carbon capture storage because the climate change committee sort of has it in their modelling. I know a lot of the UN models almost all have carbon capture storage in their you know uh, net zero emission scenarios. Are they all wrong to endorse this climate technology?
4: I mean our view is that the focus must be on reducing um emissions for the reasons that um I've given. Um whether there may be some role for some of these technologies in some way is another matter. But the problem is that as you can see with something like Avichi Sunak's announcement about licensing, what's he saying? He's announcing a whole new load of new licensing for the North Sea, and then he's also putting this right next to, oh, and by the way, we're, we're investing in carbon capture and storage. Now, the Committee on, on Climate Change has not said that oil and gas licensing should go ahead. So you can see that in the North Sea, um, and you can see also that um, the UN's um, Antonio Guterres has um, also criticized vishisunak Sunak as a dangerous radical for what he's just done. So I think some of this is – I think the danger with um, – Reliance on these technologies is the kind of action or lack of action that we're seeing from this government. And I think that suggesting that these things can be, you know, play a role in some way is very different to saying this can be, you know, the be all and end all or we don't need to really worry about anything else.
3: So, looking ahead with the legal decisions coming down the line, I'd like to get your opinions on the Surrey Hills oil drilling case. So for our listeners, the Supreme Court is currently deciding on whether or not it was lawful for Surrey County Council to give the go ahead on the oil drilling project at Horse Hill in Hawley. Now, have I got this right? The point of this challenge is to test and find out if future greenhouse gas emissions should be considered or should have been considered in this case. Have I got the gist right?
4: Yes, that is the gist. Um, just to be specific about it, it's um, it's a case about whether uh, downstream emissions, so from the end use of the fossil fuel when it's actually burnt, okay, okay. Um, whether they need to be included in the environmental impact assessment when planning permission is considered for oil production or you know a coal mine. So,
3: uh, so prior to this decision, it's completely fine to consider. They're called scope one and scope two emissions. So my direct impact of my project, but I don't need to worry about what happens to my product at the end, the downstream emissions. So what happens to my oil? I don't need to consider that at the moment, but this decision could change that if granted.
4: The thing is, is that this is the first time this issue has come before the court. And that's why it's gone all the way up to the Supreme Court. So at the moment, I mean, Friends of the Earth believes that Sarah Finch and the World Action Group were absolutely right in the law. Um, the requirements under the environmental impact assessment regulations are very clear, but there's there hasn't been a court ruling on this. So in some cases, there, um, there have been examples of end use emissions being considered as part of the planning process. And then in some cases, they haven't been considered. Um, Friends of the Earth believes that, you know, given the environmental impact assessment uh, regulations require um, the assessment of indirect and direct significant environmental effects. And given that as night follows day, these um, emissions are going to be generated because nobody disputes that when this oil is extracted, it will be burnt. It's not going to be buried in the ground by some philanthropist afterwards. It's, it is going to be burnt um that means that these are clearly effects of this development um and bearing in mind also that the directive which is the root of these uh, regulations was amended in 2014 specifically to include um emphasis on climate change because it was recognized that climate change as a phenomenon had not been factored in properly into environmental assessment because it wasn't known as a phenomenon when you know, the directive was originally uh, came into being in the same way.
3: So can you just take us through, just play us through a scenario and say the Supreme Court rules that Surrey County Council erred in its decision, that so they got it wrong. What would be the impact on other applications in this country? Can you just take us through that scenario?
4: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, there's a certain amount of unknown here because we don't know what the reasoning for the Supreme Court will be, but if they were to find in favor of um, Sarah Finch and rule that Surrey County Council acted unlawfully here, then it's clear that there could be ramifications for other fossil fuel projects that are seeking planning permission because they all need to go through this environmental impact assessment process. Um, So this could mean that the Whitehaven coal mine decision, for example, um, was unlawful um, because that also did not consider downstream emissions in the environmental impact assessment. And it's very telling um, that that is is an entirely possible reality, given um, the promoter of the Whitehaven coal mine felt it necessary to intervene in the Supreme Court in this Sarah Finch Horse Hill challenge, and that coal mine is at the other end of the country. It's a much bigger project. This is a relatively small oil project down in Surrey, but yet they've uh, involved themselves in a entirely separate planning decision. And the reason for that clearly is that they're concerned about possible implications for their coal mine. And that mine is being challenged by that coal mine. Decisions being challenged by Friends of the Earth and South Lakes Action on Climate Change. So. We shall see what happens with the Supreme Court's uh, decision in Horse Hill, but that's that's one example. And then other projects which have not yet been granted planning permission could also find themselves having to consider um, scope three slash downstream emissions. And I think you know the reason fossil fuel promoters have been fighting so hard um, against. The requirement to include downstream emissions in this overall planning process is that they know um, that if decision makers were actually confronted with the true reality of what these, of the climate impacts of these projects, then they might think twice before granting them planning permission.
3: Game's up, isn't it?
4: Well, it, it certainly, you know, seriously um, ups the stakes for them. And they wouldn't be fighting so hard about it otherwise. You know, if they thought, well, who cares? Then why would they even be, why would they be involving themselves in these cases? Because scope one and two emissions um, amount to a tiny fraction of the total climate impact of these projects in front of the Earth's view and in the view of the World Action Group. So to give an example, with Horse Hill, um, the uh, residual emissions from the operational process of digging the oil up out of the ground was around a hundred and something like 120,000 tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. Whereas when the downstream emissions were calculated and this wasn't done at the time that, you know, planning permission was applied for, it was over 10 million tons. So you see the same sort of picture with the Whitehaven coal mine, which is a much bigger project there. Um, operational emissions amounted to around 2 million tonnes, which was huge in and of itself. But um, including downstream emissions, it was over 220 million tonnes. Wow. So what is happening, and the reason Friends of the Earth supported Sarah Finch and the World Action Group on this case, is there's been a gross underestimation of the climate-wrecking nature of these projects, Um and they're being granted planning permission without decision makers understanding what these impacts are. So the stakes are very high.
3: For our listeners, cause we said it a few times, how can a, you know, a coal company intervene on a legal case? How does that work? You've intervened on this case. Can you just take us through that process?
4: So, um, the main parties to a case are of course the person bringing the case the claimant and then you have the the person who or the party who made the decision that um is being attacked so they're the defendant in a judicial review uh, sort of scenario um if um if somebody um whether a person or um an organization of some kind feels that they have a level of expertise um or background or knowledge base that would assist the court in some way with resolving the dispute, then they may apply to intervene and the court has an absolute discretion over whether or not to allow them to be part of um, the case. So That's what an intervener is. Um, if you have an uh, absolutely direct interest in the case, then you're less likely to be an intervener, more likely to be what's called an interested Party, um, West Cumbria Mining Limited were not the recipients of the planning permission in in Surrey, so on that basis they have um, they applied to the Supreme Court to intervene, and I think um, they were not the only ones. Um, so of course, um, Friends of the Earth um, has intervened, um, Greenpeace did as well in the Supreme Court stage, and also the Office for Environmental Protection. Um, which was a very uh, significant move by them because it's the first time that they have ever intervened in any court case since they came into being following Brexit so it again shows the massive st- uh, strategic importance of the case
3: and are you then privy to more things than if you'd be outside
4: oh yes you see um or you see the other parties the main parties submissions um In this case, we were all granted a written submission, so we had the right to file arguments um, ourselves. Um, And then we attended the hearing as well.
3: And do you know when we can expect to hear a decision from the Supreme Court?
4: Um, I don't know. Unfortunately, it's the short answer. Um, the Supreme Court's uh, timeframes for handing down judgments varies a lot from case to case. So, for example, um, we've had experience of judgments being handed down within a few months. But then one can see looking at the Supreme Court's website that sometimes they may take um, almost a year um, to hand down a judgment. So um, it could come any time, basically.
3: I'd like to propose a hypothetical for you now. And that is you are in charge of the government's legal department, the policies, the regulations, whatever you like, you are the go-to. What would be your first mission in your first six months of office?
4: If I was in charge of the government's legal department? You've got
3: everything. You've got control of whatever you want, laws, regulations, policies, whatever it is. What would you do in your first six months? (laughs) You've got the power. What would you do? (laughs)
4: I mean, I think what I would seek to do is to ensure that everybody um, in every single team um, was aware of the need to bring environmental um, issues into whatever their work was and to to realize the synergies between um, or, or the connectedness between um, different areas of policy so that there's a sort of joined up thinking. I would also, um, want to encourage every single, um, lawyer in the government legal department, um, when they are asked to advise on decisions, um, which are environmentally damaging to highlight as far as they possibly can, the risks, um, of pursuing those sorts of policies, um, under you know the legislation under the relevant legislation i do think that you know with the government legal department um i have no doubt that there are lots of lawyers in the government legal department who are seeking to do these things i think ultimately in terms of where the where the real power lies it's definitely um in terms of what what decisions are turned out it's definitely with um you know, with government ministers, et cetera, rather than um, I would say that the lawyers um, typically advising them.
3: So you'd change that. You'd say, listen, ministers, none of that. There's a new law. <laughs> You've got to listen to the lawyers.
4: I don't think I could go that far. That would turn into a, a different kind of unelected um, state, I think.
3: But I jest, but you, you make that point about there not being a sort of a joined up, Uh, approach to environmental policy, climate policy across the government departments. That that is genuinely your opinion, that right now there there isn't a coherency amongst government departments?
4: I don't think there is a coherency, absolutely no. Um, I think if you look at something like um, where we are with the planning system, for example, I think the national planning policy framework, whilst it does include it does include include requirements on climate change. There isn't a sort of um, specific net zero or carbon budget test set out in such words within planning policy. That's something that the Committee on Climate Change has highlighted. And then, you know, it's government at different levels, isn't it? There's a central government. There's also local government. Um, we see things like declarations of, climate emergency from various councils. Yeah, where's that gone? It's a good question. I mean, Surrey County Council declared a climate emergency and then months later granted planning permission for the old development at Horse Hill. So I think there is a lack of joined up thinking, certainly within uh, different departments and at different levels.
3: But you'd change that if you're in charge. I like it. (laughs) Katie, thank you for joining us.
4: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Eco Chamber. Thank you to Pippa Neil, Tess Colley, and also to James and Katie. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please head over to endreport.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and we'll see you again next time.